0: Welcome to episode 118 of the AT Construction Podcast, and this was a really special episode. You know, last year for our holiday episode, we brought on our field team, right, which consisted of Adam, Spencer, Andrew, and Paul, just a core of uh, our team on the front end that works through estimating, and this time we wanted to have a unique spin. We brought in our back end side, so we brought in our two project coordinators, Megan and Sue. We also brought in our controller, McCall, and our general counsel, Patrick. And we wanted to get into how our company's evolved over the last nine years. And especially when it comes to contracts and job costing and pricing and what our coordinator does, what they're responsible for, how that baton is handed off between each person, the logistics that go behind the scenes to run a successful company. And this is something we're learning every day and we're a much better company we are today than we were five years ago and eight years ago. And that process continues to get better, more refined. And it's really these key people that are behind the scenes, helping solidify our systems, our protocol, our documentation. So without further ado, let's get started. So welcome today to Construction Podcast. And for our holiday episode, we have some amazing guests with us today. Uh, Last year we brought on our field team, you know, and our estimating team. This time we have really the backbone of our company. So we have Patrick, who's our general counsel, we have Sue and Megan, both project coordinators and our controller, McCall. So with that said, we're gonna start with you, Megan. We wanna introduce yourself, how long you've been with the company, and really what your role consists of.
1: Okay. Um my name is Megan Showers. I have been with the company for about a year and a half now. And my role is to assist, assist in delivering the best quality of work that's within budget. Um, so that means assist in the bidding process. Um, it's a means assisting with project cor- or project um, managers, superintendents, and the estimating department, and then working with the trades to fulfill um, what the clients want, what the designers have spec'd, and the architects have created on the plans.
2: So I'm call Ballard. I'm the controller, and um, that basically means that I manage the financial part of the business. So I oversee accounts payable, accounts receivable, mm-hmm. all of our financials for people don't know accounting things, that just means I make sure money's coming in and money's going out to the people that need it. And um, then I turn in reports at the end of the month that tells the owners of the company how good or bad things went during the month. So that's the gist of what I do. And I get to do some bonus projects sometimes, but that's... Which we'll dive into a little bit too. (laughs)
3: Uh, Patrick Goyne, I'm general counsel. Um, I've been with the company since the beginning. Brad and I started, yeah. uh, what was that back in 2012? 2000, 2012. 2012
0: Official. Yeah. I mean, you and I met each other 2011 ish. Yeah. But it was 2012.
3: Yeah. yeah. Remember the days when it was just you and I in the yeah, office building? <laughs> it was. So, anyway, yeah, I've been there long enough that uh, I didn't have any gray hair when I started, and now I got a full head. So. <laughs> um so my role as general counsel, sometimes I think it's to be the most disliked person uh, in the company because I like to put on the brakes when everybody wants to go a million miles ahead. But um, really, my role comes down to just protecting the company and trying to manage in risk. Um, and that includes drafting, reviewing, negotiating contracts with our uh, owners and subcontractors, um, providing legal counsel to Brad and other owners and management team in the company to help them make uh, decisions, um, provide legal support to our coordinators and project managers, and um, you know just keep apprised of any laws or cases that will affect our our business, and then um, coordinate with the outside counsel um, when needed if it's a specialized uh, issue or you know we have some arbitration or litigation that we might be dealing with. So, um, I'm Sue Senatampo and
4: I'm a project coordinator, and I've. Been been with the company since march of 2013 and um yeah kind of like what megan says i mean basically do the coordination between all the different facets of the job um estimating through warranty and then coordinating with architects and designers and the wants and needs of the homeowner and it's it's actually a lot of fun a lot of it's a lot of work but it's a lot of fun
0: so, I guess to the coordinator side, you know, one question that's when I speak with contractors and those, you know, looking at the formation of their company, they want to know specifically, like, well, how does a coordinator like benefit the field? How does it benefit the office, the team? So, without getting into like justifying everything you do, because I know how much both of you do, but help the listeners understand really when, when they come with AFT and they get Megan or Sue, what does that entail? Like, your day, a normal day, what does that consist of? Just a variety of scopes of work and projects and tasks that happen throughout a normal day, whether it be pricing to estimating to purchasing?
4: Basically, we just kind of bridge that bridge between the field and accounting and, you know, any kind of option pricing. I mean, there's the initial estimate, but then all throughout the project, we're pricing up, you know, changes the client may want to make or, um, you know, just pricing things, you know, trying to keep job costs going. Um, There's, I mean, it's, it's kind of constant, especially if you have two or three or four jobs going at once at various stages, you know, there's just a lot of things that you want to do, but you also want to kind of keep an eye on things with the designer, what they're selecting, what they're working out and how that coordinates with the trades and.
0: And I think a good example too. and, And Sue, just as we go down this, this road here, we're dealing with a project right now. So you have a hillside project and, you know, hypothetically everything's discovered, right? That, that, you know, the architect engineer, everything's, you know, bought out, thought out, bid out, contracted right through Patrick. But now you're contacting the utility company. And normally if, if a company doesn't have a good project coordinator, right? The superintendent who's in the field is going to be responsible to now figure out, well, even though the engineer had thought that we're going to have power and you know, sustainable water and everything else that we need to get up to the, you know, the, the mountaintop, that's not the case. And so how does, how do you get involved working with municipalities, utility companies to be a support to the field?
4: Um, well, I mean, basically contact them, find out where their latest, you know, where their nearest point, you know, and termination point for power or, or cable or gas is and what it's going to take off-site to get it to the property line and of course each of those um, utilities have their own designers that we coordinate with and you know we at one point we're gonna on this current hillside we were going to cross the road now it looks like we're going to be going around a cul-de-sac and and staying in the in the pue but um it's you know basically it's a lot of you know coordinating emails back and forth being on hold and that's something that the field guys certainly don't have time to do. And so that's, that's what we do, you know, is just kind of get, get that process going and work through those details.
0: And it's interesting because a lot of people ask, well, what does it take to build a custom home, right? And there's so many variables with any house, but another house that we had a while back uh, that I know McCall worked on before her as controller. So e- even where the engineer has laid out where the transformer is for the electrical company, the municipality, or I should say utility company, We go, once the account's set up and we're ready to to connect and and now trench to the house, the utility company says, well, actually, you're like the last house in the subdivision. We've exhausted all of our power. So based on our grid, you're going to have to come from this other transformer, and the client's going to have to pay $40,000 and trench across the street. And so a lot of this is there's difficulty in these projects that are unforeseen Mm -hmm. from anybody. And that's where, you know, just speaking from my observation, my role, when I see McCall and Sue... And Megan, working on this, they're they're strategizing, they're problem solving, they're figuring out, you know, what is an alternative solution? How do we, you know, change this from forty thousand dollars issue to maybe an eight thousand dollars problem, right? And how do we work with the client and then work with the vendor? Um, so I know that's a lot of work for both of you. To do that, and for you, Megan, on your side, you know, especially coming in, you came from the solar power industry, now coming into a general contractor. How has that changed your mind of construction? and just what it takes to really build a house and a successful project.
1: I did not understand the complexity that goes into building a custom home. I had no idea. And so coming from solar, that was such a small little part. I knew about main panels and things like that. But nothing to what, you know, a home goes through from a dirt lot to a Finished home and everything that goes into it, and so I. There's been a lot of learning, and there still continues to be learning every single day in problem solving, and that's what's fun about this is that every day there is something new to learn.
0: So McCall, I coming back to you, and I think your story is really interesting. I think it's important for the context of the conversation is um, to give us a little bit about your journey as controller. I mean, first off, I want you to get into a lot of. People that knew I was going to have you on, they were asking, Well, what does a controller do, right? Because we understand accounting or maybe you're outsourcing payroll, but just the financial health of the company. And, and you know, we've had meetings, you know, six months, you know, looking at budgets. And also, you can expand a little bit in your role too when you're looking, if we're coming to you saying, Hey, McCall, we're looking at doing this investment or this spec home, you know, and you're running financials and projections. But more importantly, your story is really interesting how we found you where you started your experience, because now, I mean, you've come such a long way in such a short time. So speak about your transition here at AFT. Yeah.
2: So I started AFT as a temp. I came on to just be like an accounting assistant. Mm -hmm. I wanted a job that I could, I was going to school at the time I was getting my MBA. So I wanted something that wasn't going to take very many hours and that I could just (laughs) (laughs) like, okay, like go work for a couple hours, go home and do school. Well, like the longer that I worked and like the more that I found out And the more the company needed me, um, we got me transitioned over to be a project coordinator. And that was um, so helpful for me to learn the actual like process, like what came behind all the change orders that I had been processing and all of the um, like vendor invoices that I had been working on when I was in accounting. Right. So I'm like learning all these things like, oh, this is how they build this. This is how we like figure out that thing or how they build that weird like it's just like this whole process I had no idea about and I still kind of kept my hands in accounting a little bit with a few things and I had I think a lot of (laughs) meetings with you where I would come and be like uh Brad I noticed this thing and I think that it could be better if we like did this thing like it's just an idea (laughs) but like I just think that we could probably make a little bit more money if we were doing things in this way or that way and eventually somehow i convinced you that it would be a good idea to make me the controller <laughs> not on very pur- not on purpose but yeah it was sneaky yeah um but i just its called
0: shadow leadership right where you're yeah. just kind of like just working and working and then eventually it's like okay
2: yeah tell I, me what to do mccall yeah like i just felt very strongly like we could be doing a lot better than what we are in a lot of things and so um i shared those and then we kind of uh like formed my role, right? Yeah,
0: and before we get into like the role of controller, I think this is really interesting. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of younger people in design architecture and construction reach out, you know, asking about, well, how how do you get to this level? How do you get to build a certain thing or work for this designer? But the reality is, you know, there is a lot of truth be told about hard work, right? You come in and make a great impression. And I'll speak to, I mean, everyone's sitting here. I mean, everyone's gone way above and beyond what their normal scope is, team players. I mean, that's huge for the company we have. but for McCall. I know you came in as temp working four hours a day and in (laughs) assistant accounting. And we had like an admin accountant that you were working on at the time. And then we evolved. She's a project coordinator. Now she's learning construction and she's figuring out how to dissect a wine cellar and how that's all put together and all the different elements and, you know, to a house and just all the little components that are in there. And then now at the same time, she was getting her MBA. So she does have an MBA from University of Utah, you know, from the schooling side. And so now it, it just made sense when you're a controller here now at AFT and our other entities, you know, you have a lot of understanding of the construction industry, which has been really valuable, especially as you work with Megan and Sue yeah. on a regular basis. Uh, so speak to the, just why, you know, as a company's growing, why should they look about having, look at having the role of a controller as opposed to maybe just if, if I was running the company just outsourcing maybe bill pay or pay apps or, um, you know, payroll, you know, what is it just having that in-house at and having a controller on hand?
2: So I think, and at least this is how I view my role, is the numbers tell you a story about your business. They're going to tell you what's going really good. The numbers are going to tell you what's not going very good. It's going to show you where your weaknesses are um, a lot faster than almost anything else, right? So to me as a controller, my role is to somehow Take the numbers and digest them in a way that I can send it to my management team or the ownership and be able to say, look, I notice these things are happening in your company, in our company, and I think we can do better. And by being in-house, I can say like, okay, I noticed these things are coming from this department, or I notice these things are coming from this department, and if we fine-tuned this little thing, we can change our profits. Or if we fine tuned this thing, we can manage our overhead a little bit better. And so being in house makes a really big difference because then you have someone who can do an actual analysis of what's going on and give you a real picture of what needs to change in order to get you to where you wanna be financially in I your lo- company.
0: Yeah, and I love that you share that because what I, the value I've seen, I mean previously to McCall, um, This is really the weakness of most companies. And this isn't just related to construction. Most companies struggle understanding, are they profitable? Um, And and the reason being, you know, you have contracts, you have values, whether you're cost plus, whether you're lump sum, it doesn't matter. But any business manufacturing, if you don't understand the cost of goods, like any of us that watch Shark Tank, right? They go on Shark Tank and they're going to ask them, what does it cost to make your product, right? How do you, do you understand manufacturing? What does it cost? You know, when you think of client retention, what does client retention cost? What does it cost for, to find new clients, right? These are all track metrics that if you have someone that understands that, and when you think about the construction side of things or design, that's a fee business, someone in the role such as McCall, where she's sitting down saying, okay, Brad, here's what we spent this year on marketing, right? Here's what we have spent on dumpsters. Here's what we've spent on X, Y, Z. And so we have either goals that are set that she's working on for next year, you know, year end goals and we can track that throughout the year so it really gives us an active pulse. And this is really important as we get into WIP, you know, explain WIP and how what's really tough about construction is projects can be delayed, they can be lengthened. Uh you, you know, you're trying to deal with work in progress, which is WIP, and how can that convolute as well as be an advantage to your personal financials as a company, you know, by understanding a true WIP.
2: Yeah, so um, just to kind of explain WIP to the listeners. Do our listeners know about um, our combine protein?
0: They don't. So, well, okay. well, a little bit. So those who listen on, and just to preface this, so uh, I had Dave Clark on, so our 100th episode, we had Dave Clark on. Uh-huh. And with Dave, who's a partner of ours, and we have other ventures. So AFT is really how most people know, us through social media. But we have some other investments. And part of that, the methodology behind that is that we want AFT to be a brand that's going to be around forever. And construction does Ebb and Flows Ebb and Flow. So how can we structure the company with real estate, with brick and mortar technology, manufacturing, production, you know, T V side, com you know, when you talk about the protein side, you know, these days background is food industry, so we've invested in some food companies and McCall is running all these different entities. Patrick, which we'll get to, is involved in all these entities, even outside AFT. So there's, you know, hiring and new companies and projections and, and advertising and all these things that go into it. So that prefaced it a little bit for you.
2: Yeah. So, um, it, in combine, we sell protein jars and I wanted to use this as an example, um, to help people understand whip a little bit. So when you sell a jar of protein, uh, you sold that jar that day and you get to recognize those profits that day. Right. And that's a great thing today. We sold, you know, 10 jars and you made X amount of dollars like per a jar lemonade. you feel great like go to this lemonade, is awesome. lemonade yeah, stand like... stand. You 10
0: glasses of lemonade a buck each 10 bucks okay that's instantly yep. recognized revenue
2: yeah and and it's uh i don't want to say easy to account for because it depends on what else is going on but it's uh compared to it's more a whip, trackable. it's more trackable right and you know that day how much you made that day well in construction you sell a house And that house might take a year, it might take two years, you might be building something that is so huge, it's going to take you three years, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't happen instantly. So what your whip does is your whip tells you, okay, you have um, progressed this far in your costs on this job. And based on that, we're going to say, you know, maybe we have had enough costs in a job that we're only 5% along, we're not very far. Well, we want to recognize at the end of that month, uh, 5% of the profits that we expect to make on the job, because uh, we don't want to wait three years to make our profit, right? So um, you'll recognize like 5% of your profit one month, and the next month, maybe you'll inch up a little bit, and you'll get to recognize 10 more percent, and that goes along until you complete the job. Well, in order to figure out what your profit percent is, you have to know how much you're going to make on the job total. And most of the time, that's an estimate because what's going to happen, and our project coordinators have kind of talked about this already, is that as the job moves along, you find out about all these problems, right? Like there was something about your utilities that didn't go how we thought or your stone showed up and you hate it. And so now, <laughs> yeah. and so like now you want that ripped out. Off. Yeah, like there's some things that happen that you just totally hate. And so you're gonna pull it out. Well, all those things change the cost. And sometimes, um, depending on the situation, sometimes us as a builder, we're gonna say, um, you know, we, we're gonna eat that cost for our clients and not pass it along. Maybe it was something that we Caused. made a mistake on. Or sometimes it's something the client really wanted, and that's going to change the whole projection of the job, right? How much they're paying in, how much we have to pay out, et cetera. So every month, um, your WIP projection kind of changes because what's happening on the job changes. So it's you try and be as real and as good at estimating that as you can, but it's fairly challenging because you don't know uh, what hidden things are on the job or what... Ideas your clients or designers are going to have. Um, so my job is to just kind of stay like as good as I can, on, like on top of what changes are happening with the job, so that I can estimate right how much profit we're really going to make on that job. Um, so that I'm guessing basically the right amount of profit for us to take every month.
0: And really, what that's done with McCall spending the, the time she has and the emphasis, what it's happened is that now we have a really good snapshot of where we are every day in the business, but also it helps us moving forward because now we can project costs. You know, what do we spend? What's our database on this similar project? How much do we spend uh, going back to the example on dumpsters, on printing, on site demo, whatever it is. And so we can understand collectively, which now helps Sue and Megan who are in the bidding process. And we can understand that process, especially as we get into insurance and tax and those audits, right. That now Patrick will get involved in, Uh, and I will say as a company, as you think about the structure, I mean, it's so valuable to really understand that whip portion, that's something as a company being transparent, we really struggled with early on because construction is such a different um, you know, element to, as a company and, and that was a weakness of ours. And the problem is if you misproject that profit or you realize a profit that's not there, or it's unknown, now you're paying maybe higher taxes. And then end of year, you're realizing it wasn't where it was and you can miss. And, and in some cases, maybe you misproject and you may make more and you're paying short on taxes, which can create a problem. So it's really important to be accurate on that whip. You know, moving to you now, Patrick, from a general counsel, outside of things I do, what keeps you up at night?
3: Um, I guess just making sure our projects are going along smoothly. Um, you know, I think one of the questions you had for me was about what I think is the biggest risk in the construction industry. Right. And I think there's several of them. But for me, my, you know, and everybody's going to have their own, own opinion on it. Um, for me, I think my view of the biggest risks are obviously construction defect claims, um, uh, job site related issues such as injuries or property damage or anything like that. Um, and then we also have, uh, you know, labor shortages, material shortages, uh, price and volatility, all that stuff, and how that's going to affect um, contracts going going there. Um,
0: So let me ask you about this. I mean, as we break this apart a little bit, Patrick, I mean, you talked about the injury side, and I know this is something you've spent a lot of time with us, refining our contract, just on minimums that companies should have. Where did that knowledge or experience come from? How has that changed now that you've been more involved on the construction side of the legal industry?
3: Well, fortunately, we've had um, a a good insurance company that we worked with that's been uh, willing to um, be very open to us and ask a lot of questions, set up meetings, discuss with them what exactly we need. Um, They've been very experienced in the construction industry so they know. Um, But basically when it comes to insurance minimums, I think what we require our subs to have is similar or the exact same as what we state we're gonna have in our prime contracts. And that's just a very um, industry standard amount. But what the minimums do for us is just make sure that our subs have enough coverage that in the event that they're responsible for a loss that they have, enough insurance to cover that loss. So um, again, it's all about minimizing risk, right, to us. So we don't want our insurance to have to kick in if possible. So if we can have our subs have the proper minimums that their insurance company can cover the loss. Especially for
0: things they're causing.
3: Yes, exactly. um, That they're responsible for, then our insurance company doesn't have to kick in. So now we don't have a claim and we're not risking our premiums going up. So so
0: how does that work do you ever get pushback? you know and and the reason i ask that is because we do have minimums and when you look at this as a construction industry as a whole there are a lot of contractors that are working you know handshakes or working on napkins or it's agreements you know maybe we're they're just signing the change order or po from the vendor or their proposal they're not reciprocating and saying hey we actually okay we'll take all this into consideration and implement it but here's our parent contract right so there's a lot of companies that don't do that What's the risk that contractors or designers architects have by just signing subcontractor change orders and not having anything as a protection?
3: Sure. I think, you know, you can kind of lump our contracts with the owners and our subcontractors into the same basket because it defines the relationship. So our prime contracts define our relationship with the owner, um, what's expected from each party. Um, So like in the prime contracts, well, actually, both of them, it will lay out payment schedules. Um, you know, we follow Arizona prompt pay law. So it defines when we need to submit an invoice to the owner, when a sub needs to submit invoices to us, how long, you know, turnaround time is, when they're going to get paid. Um, it sets forth uh, things like our warranty. What are we promising for a warranty on that project? Um, what are the arbitration or dispute resolution provisions that we're going to go for? Um but I think the most important thing that we include in our contracts, well obviously besides price if it's lump sum or a subcontract is a scope of work. Um, a detailed scope of work is extremely important for us because it sets the baseline for the project and what and in a prime contract, it defines what the owners uh, they know what they're getting and what they've authorized for so that way if there's something comes up during the project they want to make a change, we can go back and say, you know this wasn't included in the scope um it's going to be a change order and you know you're responsible for that amount um so to me to it, you know you sign these contracts and you hope you can just put them you know sign them put them in a drawer never have to look at them again because everything's going to go smoothly but they're good to have um you know be able to bring out and say okay this is what we agree to and and this is how we're gonna have to handle this problem or issue going forward
0: so i love that you share that because the, really what this comes down to when you speak about Think about scope of work, rise, communication. And so what ends up happening is when you're on a project of any level, you're going to have five opinions of what's to be done. And so as you're sitting there and everything's on paper and looks great, you know, the homeowner has a vision of what it's going to look like or the finished product or the color or the palette or the, you know, the variation of the natural stone, whatever that is. The architect has an understanding. The designer has an understanding. We as the builders do. And you may even have the landscape architect or a consultant or someone else on the side. So you can have five people that all think of what's gonna happen and then it goes in and two of them are like, that's not how it's supposed to look. Like this isn't what I signed. This isn't what I approved. This is not the detail. And now you're sitting here trying to figure this out. And really what the scope of work does is, it doesn't mean that we're gonna prevent all that from happening because there's still interpretation. We do this every day. We know how things are gonna go. Our clients don't. And our designers have an interpretation because they're involved. And so there are still gonna be misconceptions from all the parties but what really does help to your point patrick is that scope definition really helps the subcontractor and trade partner understand what they have to perform what they have to do what they have to install and provide it helps us understand and it's clearly written out so that that way if we said hey we're having stone you know on just the front elevation and someone's like why don't you have on the back you know we have that justification why it wasn't bid or why we don't have that
3: yeah i think you know and uh, Megan, Sue McCall can speak to this, uh, their experience of project coordinators, but you think of how long, especially these large custom homes that we do, how long the design process is and how many revisions that these clients go through, whether it's for budgetary reasons or whatever. And so you go through and you've changed the design 15 times through this design process and people forget, or they thought something was included when in fact they had taken it out or whatever it might be. So to be able to have that detailed scope saying okay this is the final agreement of what's included you know in our in our contract at this time um then again you have something to point back to um when changes are made determining whether it was something that should have been included originally or it's an addition
0: i love that you share that patrick and that's a super valid point i'm glad you brought that up because this is more prevalent now more than ever with pricing the market COVID, you know supply chain all these things we're dealing with is that we're dealing with escalations at an unprecedented level that any of us have ever seen. And so what happens is, uh, which is common with most homes, you design something as much as we budget and we forecast, it's going to come in higher. There's going to be different costs and the clients will, will work through that VE and we have versions that are changing. And so there's conversations had and you have a year of design. So there's a lot of things that can be left to interpretation, a lot of things that can be missed. So how can a company be effective at scope of work? And this is really who should be responsible? How's that handoff with you, Patrick? And, and we look at it just how we operate it. So Megan, Sue, jump in. How involved are you on the scope of work in working with Patrick?
1: We're extremely um, involved with working with the estimating team and then Patrick. Um, the bidding process can take can take a big chunk of time, but it's important to review all the bids that come in. There can be multiple bids and to find out what the scope of work is and and compare it and then writing that scope reviewing it multiple times to make sure it's correct and then patrick takes it and he contracts that and we i and i'm sure sue does too i refer back to the contract and the scope often and our project managers and superintendents do as they're preparing to schedule the guys the trades to come out it's it's what we follow. And yes, there are times where it deviates and changes are made, and then we process that. But that is that is our, our base.
0: Now we're super excited. Welcome one of our new sponsors to the podcast, Pella Windows. And this is even more exciting because we use Pella in so many of our projects, nearly all of them, and they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers. Because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to, to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick, their they're company culture, their integrity, their honesty. You know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes, and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call, they're here local, you know, they have an amazing Instagram, make sure to give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. And now let's get back into the episode. So I'll give a quick story. So when I was in college, I did construction management at BYU. And so when I was in college, I was part of the estimating team. And so what, at the time, I don't know if they still do this now, but there's a competition. So we competed with other universities around the country. And the whole point was you're sitting... Um, we had plans for like this huge hotel. And so we're sitting here, our estimating team, there's six of us and the way they wanted to prepare you for the real world. So you're sitting here and then you would understand the scope of work on this hotel, like all the elements from concrete to steel, the amount of rebar, right footing depths, you know, all the, all the different components of this hotel and the way this was a four day competition. So different times of the day. So maybe 11am on a Tuesday and then 4pm on a Wednesday, the fax machine would go, and this was intentional. So all the universities would have the fax line at the time. It's fax. I'm not that old, but it's just reality. Mm-hmm. So the faxes would come, and we get like pages of documents. Like bids would be coming in, just pouring in. Right? This is from a real project that was actually built in Florida. So these bids were pouring in, and then there would be an RFI from the architect. So the next day, more bids are coming in, and just so we we have like hours that we're trying to put together this bid. And I was so like new into the estimating side. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing these bids come in and we'd have five bids for concrete and they were a huge variation. And I remember like, well, how do you guess? Like, how do we, how, how can the judges really know what university understands like what the cost of this hotel should be? But I understand that now in my career and really what Megan's speaking to and Sue is that if you understand the scope, if we're going through the plans and we know, you know, the amount, how many yards of concrete, if we know the rebar, if we know, You know, how many walls have stone? What's the flooring spec? How many square feet? And we use blue beam, you know, all of these blue beam before we use plants with. And so you can understand these numbers. So now looking back, I would be a lot more skilled now going into that competition because really, if I had the scope dialed in the bids that came in, I would know which ones actually included everything, which ones were excluding things that they should have had in. And we could have known the exact number. Some of my teammates did and we ended up winning, but not because of me, They, they actually knew what they were doing, so. I was just kind of riding the coattails, but kind of like I'm riding the four here, you know, that's just what, what helps, but um, it's super valuable. So Sue, I mean, you've been in the industry, just a quick background. Sue and I have worked together since 2006. So we've been together, she's put up with me for 15 years. And so <laughs> we worked together and, and as she mentioned, her and Patrick were here from the beginning. I mean, she was actually, Patrick was here before Sue, but Sue was one of my first hires. So Sue, I mean, you've had a lot of experience you know, in the construction industry, you know, how was that gained? Do you love construction?
4: Do I love it? Um, actually, I do love it. And um, I mean, I'd have to say that part of the things I love about it is you learn something new every day. I mean, literally. And every project's a little bit different. All the circumstances are different. The trades, you know, even if you're using the same trades, it's a different situation. You know, then there's our clients. And it's just, it's it makes it really fun and varied. And um yeah, I, that's what I
0: love. So how do you manage your time, Sue? Because I know for you and Megan, when you have multiple projects and you're involved, you're really, what, what's unique about a project coordinator is that you're one of the only positions that's involved front to back. I mean, from the estimating to the final punch walk to the warranty and everything in between. And so you're responsible to understand, you know, to be at the cabinetry meeting, right? As they're making changes to, you know, be there with all the plumbing fixture selections and to understand every element to make sure. Sh- making sure that, hey, you're looking ahead with the superintendent. Have we purchased all the valves? You know, we're coming up on plumb trim, you know, or on on, on rough out, right, for plumbing. And so these are all elements you have to forecast. And so how are you managing just, you know, where you should be with your time, how you should be involved with each and every design aspect, as well as forecasting with the field to make sure that you have all the product when you need it? Uh, well, I,
4: am you know, one thing that's, Really important is you know our weekly meetings with the project manager, but um, also just.
0: So what is that? What is the weekly meeting? I know that's something, and I I know McCall was involved in this a little bit. So speak about what the weekly meeting is.
4: Um, well, it's a time set aside to which it's not limited to this meeting because we still mm-hmm. talk all week, but um, it's you know a time where we can just really sit down and focus on what are our next steps, what are change orders that might be coming up, what you know, forecasting what we're going to be needing funding-wise, things like that.
0: So I love a couple things. I know you use like a known unknown document, which is, you know, a document where we have things that are known that may be upcoming and things that are unknown. What's outstanding? The client may want to add, you know, five trees into her landscape package. So it's kind of unknown. It's not selected. It's going to be out there. And so we track that internally. You know, so in these meetings, you know, how has that been valuable? Because for you as a project corner, you're working with different supers. So... Different personalities, different management styles, and so you know how is that valuable? Having the known unknown as well as forecasting what's upcoming.
4: Um, It's really valuable because you know the unknown part is kind of your to do list to get to know what that unknown is, and so you know you're just um,
0: and there's things you may know right that and the super may know, and you're not together twenty four seven, so he may be seeing stuff in the field. You're speaking with the client or designer. And so you have to sit there and say, well, we know this has happened in the field, and this has happened behind the scenes, and how do we marry these two together? Right. Yeah. So from your side, Megan, what about one thing I like that all of you are doing is the worksheet, right? So sometimes, as you know, not everything is just a change order. We know that there's changes happening, there's field conditions, price increases. So you're tracking everything you can and just keeping that on an updated spreadsheet. It's not an official change order until they execute or approve it, but at least it's a tally.
1: Yeah, we have a couple different ways that we do things. Not only do we have an agenda that we can follow when we're doing our coordination meetings, um, that talk about you know what's coming up this week, what's coming up in two weeks, what's coming up in three months, um, and then what does the, what is the client wanting to change or you know all those types of things. But we have spreadsheets that help us understand. Okay, they've talked about adding this now let's follow up have they do they still want to add that where are we in the stage have we processed a change have we gotten pricing have we processed a change order and so we have these these different forms that assist us and help us keep track of things because there are times you know where we have multiple projects going at the same time and different supers and different um, project managers so that helps us stay on task Um, another thing that is extremely helpful when meeting with um, the guys out in the field is, is the schedule on builder trend and just knowing this is coming up in three months and we need a deposit and we need to order this. And so we can forecast ahead because they have planned out the schedule.
0: Yeah. And I'll give a good example. We have, I mean, this is our holiday episode. And so January 1st, we have some price increases coming and I know Sue and Megan have both said, Hey Brad, we need to sit down. Because we have all these projects of like some big numbers out there, some big orders. And so we're pushing through a ton of orders that now get pushed to McCall and Patrick, right? That we're going to get in this billing cycle, which now we let the clients know we're going to be billing these in advance. And it's going to save you substantial dollars, which is, which is great. And something I love that McCall has implemented with Patrick. Speak about um, the field walks, how that's valuable. Because, you know, in the past, one thing, to be transparent here, and it's not to show all the skeletons, right? But as you look at a company, McCall sp- spoke about the whip. One thing that's really important for any company to be successful is cash flow. And if you're ordering product, if you're designing ordering product, or you're build ordering product, you know, making sure that you know what has to be ordered so you can avoid price increases and then making sure how you're going to store it and stage it and procure it. Mm-hmm. But it's also making sure you have the invoices as backups so that we can build that and get in a timely manner because... What we don't want to have happen is we send in the payout because we're billing once a month. And Patrick spoke about this, that we have we have billable laws here in the state of Arizona that's in our prime contract. We can bill once a month. Most of the clients that have banks only allow once a month. So if we miss that draw and now construction schedule in the fields, like, hey, I need my tile deposit or my window deposit because of lead time, so I need to get this installed, and we don't have we haven't billed for it. We're fronting the cash, and now it puts us upside down financially. So, you know, how should a company, and what's your recommendation based on what we're doing, McCall, to fight through the cash flow challenge in a timely manner?
2: So, um, when I first took over, this was something that we weren't doing well. I don't think that it was something that had been thought about by the person that was doing the accounting before I took over. Uh, So I was kind of when I took it over there was no like system or process or anything and I was really struggling because I didn't feel like I had the information that I needed in order to be working in advance enough to get the money where I needed it to be and so that's when I kind of came up with this idea like okay well if I was just at the job and I could talk to these people I would know what's going on I would know what's there. I would know what they're working on next and they could tell me like these people are going to need money by this day in order for us to keep on our schedule. And so that was really what I wanted um was just to have like that hands-on experience for me to be able to like look at the job say okay, this this and this is done, which is what the sub's bill says they did and they're going to need this this and this in order to keep going on their schedule these next couple weeks. And so that really helped me a lot to be able to start doing that. But a a lot of it too has to do with um, how good our trades are at turning in their invoices. And I know there was a little uh, piece on what you wanted me to comment on today about what can our vendors do, right, Mm -hmm. to make sure that they're getting their money. Because just as much as we want to make sure we're getting money in like they need their money in that's what keeps everything going right the money got
0: to feed the meter you got
2: to you have to and the biggest thing that i can say to that is to follow what the contract says and i think a lot of our vendors sometimes forget about this cuz they have all their own internal processes and what is in our contract might not fully sync up with that but to read our contract and say okay i have to turn in my invoice by the 23rd if I have the invoice by the 23rd, for sure, I'm going to be able to include it in the owner invoice and get it turned around. The second piece, other than just turn it in on time, is to be accurate in what they're billing for. I can't tell you how many times they have I've gotten an invoice. It might be a little bit overbilled, and I send it over to the owner, and then the owners have issue, right? Like, hey, your sub is saying they're... 75% done with this and I looked out my window and they're only you know 40% done and I don't want to pay that other percent because I don't, I'm not seeing it on site and so either I have to call the sub and figure out like why are you at this percent and sometimes it might just be stored material or something that you can't see on site but sometimes it is they overbuild, and then they have to redo their bill and then it slows down when the owners want to pay their bill because now we have to revise and the hard part about that is now everyone on that pay app gets paid later because we were trying to fix one other person's line, right? So the more accurate that our trades can be about what they're submitting, the percentage they're saying is done, the faster we can get everybody paid.
0: I love that. And so, Patrick, how are you involved now? And and going back to this, just to reiterate what McCall's done is this is really important, especially if you're doing a cost plus contract. Right. You have to send all the backup. You have to have all the invoices. Uh, You know, that's really important for the bank and for the process of the contract that we've agreed to. And so not having those invoices means you can't bill for it. And that's why we have to stay on top of that. So why is it important? You know, how has that changed your understanding of the contract process as well as the billing process, Patrick, with McCall as you're out in the field?
3: Well, kind of going off what McCall said with the site visits and percentages, I mean, that's one of the things that we like to double check when we're on the site visits. We'll talk with the project manager and be, okay, how much percentage do you feel that the sub is complete? Because then McCall can check that against uh, what the sub is um, submitting on their invoices. Um, but for me personally, I mean, just going out, seeing the project and looking at scope, walking, you know, talking with the project manager and saying... Um, like especially if something comes up that's a change or they think might be a change, we can look at the scope and say, no, nope, it was included in the original scope. This is not a change, or it wasn't included. It's a change. Um, but for me personally, just going out, learning the process, learning what different you know uh, terminology is or or different process is. Um, I didn't have a background in construction when we started, so this is all learning new for me. So it just gives me. Uh, the ability to go out understand the construction process more Um, that way when I'm setting out contracts or you know get scopes from uh, Sue or Megan I can look through them I have a better understanding what's taking place Um, so it just for me it just overall it helps with the understanding and making sure that contracts are accurate and everything like that
0: so one point so just to reiterate and we'll get into your background a little bit Patrick is that what what McCall's done with Patrick is once a month at the end of the month when all the invoices are in from the subcontractors and trade partners before we build, do our pay application, they do a site walk on every project with the coordinator who's either remote or there as well as a super who's on site. And so the advantage is now our team is out in the field. They're seeing the progress, they're understanding it, and they can forecast too. McCall with her experience, Patrick with his, you know, Sue and Megan, and then our field staff they can forecast what's upcoming they they can see the schedule hands-on they can see we're having issues and so it just gives us as a as a company we have a better understanding more unity there to understand what's happening instead of be so fragmented which tends to happen in construction
3: well and for me personally i mean we can go and talk to the uh, project manager and there might be a, an issue that or a potential issue there's been some rumblings of an issue that might be coming up with the owner of our sub. So we can discuss that ahead of time. And that way, if it does come to fruition, we're prepared because, you know, I've been out there, I've seen it. I understand exactly what they're talking about because I've seen it with my own eyes. So it just makes that process a lot easier. And I think it can help, uh, you know, take care of issues in a more timely and sufficient manner.
0: So, did you ever see yourself when you're at Marquette coming into construction? no
3: <laughs> no, but uh, you know it's just funny how how things work out and um you know it's been a great experience and um uh you know it's just interesting to just not being a part of construction beforehand you just realize the complexities of it and just how many moving parts and um there's just so much that goes into each construction project that like as Megan was saying earlier that you just never would have guessed
0: yeah it it. It's very fun. It keeps us on our toes, right? As, as Sue said, it's different every day. You know, from your side, Patrick. I, part of the value, though, of your background. What's what is nice. You know, come from Marquette, and I know you're involved with a couple startup companies. When you and I met, you know, there was a startup company that we we're venturing out with. You know, you, Dave, and I, and, and a couple other partners there. And mm-hmm. and since then, even outside of AFT, there's a lot of other ventures we're working on, including a steel company and some other companies we've started. So, do you feel that gave you a good basis, though, just as far as operations and you know, how has that helped, you know, just all your involvement with all the different companies?
3: You're asking about the background? At yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you know, basically, or at least my opinion of law school, it, it teaches you a way to think, right? I mean, as with everything, a lot of stuff is on-the-job training, um, but it gives you a certain basis of how to... Critical think. <laughs> think. Yeah, mm-hmm. critical think, think through issues, um, obviously, uh, legal writings, of you know, a big thing. so. How to draft contracts the right way um and make sure what you're writing actually means what it says Um, and uh, obviously comprehension um that's a big part of it too reading the contract understanding what it what it really says um you know a lot of people like to use certain legalese to uh, so things aren't always clear so you got to be able to understand what the real intent is there so um, I think it just prepares you because it just gets you in that mindset of, okay, I got to read this document or I got to write this document. How am I going to protect the company? Uh, what are the best ways to do that? And a lot of that can be applied to various industries. Um, obviously each industry has its own specific, um, knowledge, um, criteria that you need. Um,
0: so but, with continuing education, have you found that valuable, you know, as you go to seminars or classes?
3: Oh, absolutely. I, I think the state, I, I go through the State Bar of Arizona for most of my continuing education. I think they put on uh, just a great amount of different uh, continuing education courses in a variety of different uh, fields. Um, we got a great construction section that puts on um, courses throughout the year. Um, they'll have one or two big full day uh, or multi day um, courses or seminars uh, each year that kind of deal with like the bigger issues in the industry. But then throughout the year, they'll have a lot of timely, you know, and they might be shorter, you know, three hour or one hour uh, courses that deal with timely issues um, to make sure, you know, some of it might be COVID related or, you know, I did one um, a few weeks ago regarding material, you know, price increases. How do you handle that? So they do a really good job of, of being consistent being, with the market. Yeah, exactly. A lot of their courses will really reflect, yeah. you know, what's the current state of the industry.
0: That's great, now, as we divert this a little bit back to Megan and Sue, so Megan, what is uh and you have to give me different answers, but what's the hardest part or the most frustrating part about your job?
1: Just like what Patrick said about what we've seen um in the last year, year and a half with with pricing and material sort shortages, that's been hard to work through um not being able to get product and product having a lead time of twenty weeks or thirty weeks, or we get um emails daily weekly of price material has gone up to this or lead time has been extended to this. And so really having to work ahead to, to get ahead of those issues has been a challenge, not only for us, but for clients as well as we talk about price increases.
0: That's a great answer because it's really hard and, and to expound upon that is that it's not only that you're having to deal with the logistics and that's now duplicating your time and effort and consuming you know, more resources that you have. But you also get the fun feedback from the customers, right? That really enjoy seeing price increases come across.
1: Yes, definitely. Um, That's hard to work through is calling them or emailing them and saying, you know, this has increased and working through those. And McCall helps us. Patrick helps us. uh, The project managers help explain it. We all just have to kind of work together and figure out what is the best resolution per price increase.
0: And then you like to give me the fun ones. Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. <laughs> and then I call them the big guns. <laughs> no, not the big guns.
0: But what about you, Sue? Um,
4: I would say the same with Megan, just, you know, price changes and the escalation is long lead times. It makes it really challenging because you do have to think so far ahead. And then if people make, you know, if there's a change, like the client says, oh, maybe we'd like to do this it's not as easy to you know make that change because there's just a lot more things to consider
3: i think that's one of the things that i've learned the most about construction as mccall and i were talking about this yesterday is that everything and anything can and will go wrong yeah. at any time <laughs> it's right? every day and so obviously the purposes of our contracts at least from my standpoint from the legal side is like i said minimizing our risk so you try to predict or uh contract have contract provisions to cover you for everything but you can't predict everything so you got to be able to be flexible and adjust contracts or whatever is needed um as you talked about with you know the COVID pandemic we've been living through no one could have predicted that right well that's changed our industry incredibly whether it's you know Mm -hmm. shortages price increases so we've learned we've had to adapt you know make changes to our contracts to account for some of those things um so i think it's important um uh you know communication is important so i think it's such a big thing for our company i'm sure all companies is that um what the project managers are seeing in the field the project coordinators are seeing you know in their roles are communicated with everybody so we can address those concerns i know one of the things that you and i talked about um a couple weeks ago was uh, we like to periodically go through our contracts and do let's mm-hmm. do a complete review See where things are at. Um, what changes do we have to be made? And so uh, we'll be looking at doing that in the coming year. But part of that's going to be um, talking to our project managers, talking to our project coordinators. What are you seeing? You know, what issues are you coming up with? Um, you know, especially in these times, that we can adjust our contracts to reflect that. Um, so you know, say material price increases. Have we addressed that in the contract so we can approach the owner and say, you know. This is what our contract says. This is why we can pass it along to you, or is there something that we're going to have to eat, or things like that? So, um, but yeah, it's just maintaining that uh, that flexibility and and just being able to adapt and address issues as they come along.
0: It's good perspective, Patrick. And I'll you know, Patrick has made countless revisions to our contract. I mean, this thing has evolved so many times over the last you know nine years we've been in business. And what I really appreciate about our team here that I've told them many times is that all of them are always looking at evolution, right? Because you have to evolve as a company, you have to evolve with, you know, how can we refine things? How can we be more skilled? And, you know, how do we pass that baton? I know McCall's been instrumental, even Sue, Megan, and Patrick on just ideas. That's what we need to do. We need to make this change. And it's great, great ideas, you know? And I would say almost all of them work out really well. You know, maybe a couple of them haven't, and so we pivot and we make some changes. But, you know, it's really valuable that as a company we're spending that time, right? Focus on the company, figuring out, okay, how can we make these changes? Because ideally we know that today we're going to build a much better home than we built two years ago than six years ago. And our our field team is much more refined. And our subcontractors and trade partners understand our process a lot more. So for you, McCall, what are some of the things that, you, um, that, that are probably the most challenging or difficult for you in your role?
2: Uh, I think the biggest thing for me is just managing people's expectations of kind of what the process is. Even internally sometimes, I think, but especially with our owners and with our vendors, because like we said earlier, like money talks to people (laughs) and they care a lot, right? So when I send an invoice to an owner, they care a lot about what that invoice is asking for and what it means happened on their house. And our vendors care a lot about making sure that when they submit their invoice that they're going to get their money timely. And, you know, I have to have everything in place internally to make sure all of those things can happen, right, from our project coordinators and project managers and having our contracts in place and everything. And I think the biggest thing in order for all of that to happen is for everyone to know, one, what's expected of them in order for me to do what I need to do, but then also what they can expect from my department, right, and being clear about what that is. I try and, especially with our subs, be very clear. This is what our process is. If it's their first time using us, like, okay, you're gonna turn your thing in on this day. You're gonna wait this many weeks and then you'll get it, like hopefully on this day, but it's gonna be based on when our owners pay. And same thing when I send like the first pay app to our owners, right? Like I try and set the expectation right up front. This is when you're gonna get your bill. This is what it's gonna tell you. This is what you're looking for. Um, this is what happens as soon as you give me your payment, you know, we try and turn it around to our subs. So the sooner, like the faster you can go, the faster that money gets to the subs, the happier subs are right. And then they keep showing up and doing good on your job because they know they're going to get paid. And so just setting those expectations all around is like so important for what happens. Cause my job is like, all the ins and outs, right? Everything that happens in the company comes in my department and out my department. So making sure everyone's expectations are clear to make that happen.
0: I love that. It's funny, I was meeting with uh, a fellow builder Rod column who's um, you know, he has an amazing company, Collum Homes. And he was telling me, he said, Brad, I have a document called the Emotional Roller Coaster.
2: And <laughs> oh yeah, he can says like that. Oh, I have it. Oh you so do. So just wait. This yeah, is news today to for the me. podcast. Okay. I'm gonna give to
0: all of you so I've, I've been working on them and i'm like i need to copy of that much roller coaster so i give it out to all my clients and what is this it's the ebbs and flows right like when we get the permit we're out the ground breaking, you're gonna love me and then at this point in the construction project you're gonna hate me and then you love me again but then you hate me and it just kind of goes ups and downs of that process and, and we know those pain points have more worked through the client you know when you're essentially married for a couple of years and you know you kind of wear out your welcome after a little while but um What's really neat, it goes back to expectations, and this is something I wanted from him because this is a document that I want to revise to our program and how we do things, and then we can edit that and then start putting that in our contract and go through that, and that's really going to be helpful for us as we communicate from the front-end sales process to you know, Patrick, who's doing the legal side, and McCall doing the billing side. And so what's neat is um, AJ. So AJ, I actually got the document, gave to him and rebuilt on Excel, so I just got it. So I'll send it to you later today, and then you can take a look, and we'll make some edits. but. That's something they that will have Patrick implement, which will be nice.
2: That's fun. It sounds funny. Yeah, but it's very true. Like it's true. that's that's what happens, and you can like I can see it just in the payouts, right? Like at yeah. the beginning, they're like, "Okay, great, it looks good. Like here's your money," <laughs> and then like you know you're like halfway through the payouts, and they're just like, "What about this five cents? Yeah. Are you sure? Like, are you sure that five cents is right? You know, <laughs> because you do like your tension. The tension just builds during the." project it's mm-hmm. hard it's hard on clients you know? and they don't
0: realize and it. it's always hard to explain you know how long things take you know you think they're gonna go faster but there's just there there's a lot of coordination there's a lot of tracking there's a lot of configuration we're all doing and it changes you know every day is different and we may have everything on schedule and we get some rain days which fortunately in our climate we're not doing a ton of snow days or other natural disasters but we have issues that you know still create problems for us and you know, going back to the pay up, I think this is important just contextually, you know, for those listening. So McCall and Patrick, speak to um, what is the prompt payment law in Arizona? What is that timeframe? What is an AIA payment application? How's that broken down? So how, whether it's a cash client or you're working with the bank, you know, what are the rules that we have to follow billing in Arizona?
2: So the way that it works is you can submit the payout to the owner. And they get 14 days to review that and say, like, okay, all of this looks right to me. Or for them to say, "Mm, I don't know if this is really this personage. And something that I do tell our owners, like, I go out to the job, right? Or someone from my team does. And I see what's going on, but I might not know, like, some very specific detail of a line item. So it's important that the owners are reviewing these because they sometimes know something that I don't. That they can catch in the money of it but so they have 14 days for that review process to be able to say like i agree with all of this or i don't agree and we need to make an adjustment so we'll make an adjustment if there needs to be and then from the day that they approve it they have seven days to make payment to us and then we have seven days from the date that we receive payment to get our payment to our subcontractors so it's kind of a a quick but also feels like a long process, especially to our subs, because they're waiting, you know, they probably turned in their pay app a week before I sent it to the owner. They have 14 days, seven days, and then seven more days before they might get paid. So it can create a long period of time if you have owners who are slow in the process, but the process is set up to protect everyone in the process, right? Give the owners time to review and approve, and then make sure that the subcontractors are getting the payment that they're owed and that that money isn't going elsewhere
0: and from your patrick house you know how important is that just set an expectation you know up front contract wise especially on a pre-qual kit you know as we have a new vendor that's reaching out you know understanding just the protocol from insurance certs you know to insurance coverage right warranty all those things that you're working through on that pre-qualification
3: sir and uh Megan's been asking me for a lot of these lately, but (laughs) uh, so if we have a a subcontractor that we're looking to use that we haven't used previously, uh, we like to try to send them a prequalification packet. And what basically about that is, is it'll be a forum that's designed for a few things. One, we get basic information. uh, You know, what's your entity name? uh, What's your register of contractor licenses um, or license? um, Who are your authorized signers for contracts and other documents? Um, then we'll ask a section on insurance information, have them fill it out, you know, what their limits are. Do they have, you know, the specific endorsement mm-hmm. or not? Um, we'll ask them about their bonding information. We'll ask them questions. You know, have you been, have you filed for bankruptcy in the past? Have you failed to complete a pod a project in the past? Um, uh, uh have you had any OSHA violations in the past? and yeah we'll ask for references for both uh, you know other general contractors that they worked for maybe a banking reference um so what the goal of those is just you know we have a standard we want to set at aft and we want to make sure that our subs are are going to uphold you know our brand and our our standard um so that's just a kind of the initial way to get some more information about their company and make sure that they can meet the requirements of our insurance um, so that they're covered. Um, And then we'll send them like a sample certificate or insurance certificate um, of what we'd like to see. And then I have a checklist um, that really breaks down, you know, what they need for insurance. And we say, um, you know, send this off to your agent, have them take a look at it. Let us know if you can't comply um, with a certain provision. We'll see if we can work with you on it. But it's just a way to um, try to vet our subs ahead of time because at the end of the day, it's our reputation on the line. And there are subs, so we got to make sure they're they're upholding you know our brand.
0: And and the reality is, talking, we're in a risk industry, and it's not only the financial risk, but I mean, there is actually a human risk, right? I mean, people can there's a casualty aspect, unfortunately, in our industry. So it's really important that we're checking all that because it you know there's lifelines on, you know that that come into play there. And so from Patrick, I mean, everything on paper is always easier on paper, and then it's execution, it's the tracking, right? And so, I think for most people that aren't fully involved in contracting all their subs or understanding the complexity there is that there's multiple subs you're working on multiple projects. So getting contracts out, right? Working with Sue and Megan, getting all those contracts out, tracking to make sure they're signed, getting insurance certifications, making sure we're named as additional insured. And then the other challenge is, it's not like everyone's insurance expires on December 31st, right? It's tracking, it's expired all throughout the year. So for every company, you have to track with their insurance. So how do you manage just the the complication of all of those different documents
3: well I have a a spreadsheet that I use um, for each project Um, so I'll have okay this specific project and then I track it where I'll put okay this sub I sent out the subcontract on this day Uh, we received it back on this day this is the day I sent back a fully executed copy to them this is the day you know we received their insurance certificate If we only receive part of their insurance certificate, I'll write, okay, we received the certificate only, but we didn't receive uh, the additional shirt endorsement or whatever it might be. So I have a spreadsheet that I'm tracking all that. Um, And then if we're using them on multiple jobs, obviously I'll go back and when I send the contract, I'll check to see do we have current insurance for them. Um, Some of our subs are able to have blanket policies where it'll cover any and all jobs they do for us during their policy period some subs they can only issue certificates on a project specific basis so um i just need to make sure that if we do have a current one does it apply for any job so they don't need to get any more insurance certificates to us or is it you know this certificate that the sentence was for this specific job so now we got to get another one for the new job to make sure we're covered for that job so um yeah it's just trying to stay organized um keep keep a spreadsheet, keep everything tracked. One thing's come in one comes out. Um, and like I said, just whenever I send a subcontract, I just make sure I'm checking, you know, to see if we have something that's current or not current. Now,
0: speaking for an outside, for a trade partner, you know, and, and this is thinking outside of our entity, Patrick, is do, does a trade partner have any variation in, in a contract? Should they be signing every contract that the GC gives them? Uh, can they negotiate? Can they push back maybe on either terms or
3: language um well, I think they should just sign it as is, but <laughs> uh, no, i mean we're I think we've been fairly open to negotiation on certain provisions. obviously, there's ones that you know we wanna you know stand firm on um to make sure that we're protected, but I feel like we're we've done a pretty good job of being willing to negotiate certain terms with our subs, especially you know we have subs that do great work for us and we don't want to, we don't want to lose them. So um, if we have to give in on a certain provision, then maybe we'll do that just to make sure we have a sub that's, you know, doing quality work for us. Uh, but at the end of the day, we got to protect ourselves. So if it's a provision that we just don't think we can live with them, you know, we'll, we'll stand our ground, but uh, I think we're pretty open.
0: Yeah. And I know you have been, and I know there's some trade partners that as they built kind of a rapport and we understand there's their process right it's a little bit easier to work through some of those items you know from your side Megan being only a year and a half into the project coordination and you've you know excelled so quickly um, what do you feel was your biggest like growth in the company or in your role like learning you know as far as the construction schedule or scope of work I mean what has been the most fascinating to you
1: well, like we said earlier, we still learn things every day, um, but I enjoy, and I feel like what's been beneficial for me is going out to site visits and seeing it, um, seeing what is on plan come to life, and then that is like a stepping stone for other projects. And so then when I do see it on paper on the next project, I know what may be coming next or what to foresee and so i'm such a hands-on person and such a visual learner that those site walks whether it be with accounting with mccall and patrick or whether it be just with the client the designer or the super is beneficial for me to to know what may come next or to to just learn
0: and i think You know i'm glad you touched on that because i'm often asked that in construction i think my favorite part about what we do it's such a hard industry and it's so challenging and at times we have our own emotional roller coaster that we're all dealing with on a daily basis it changes throughout the day but the reality is you know when you get to go back and see a project finish right and you get to see where it started go back and it's funny as humans a lot of times although we've had some pain points you know on some projects but you look back, and there's a lot of good you see from it. You don't remember some of the really challenging times, but you see, you know, the end result. And as you go back in your career, and you see the customer enjoy that, or the client, or uh, you know, whoever the vendor is, you know, it's 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 very self fulfilling, you know, to see that and see, hey, we 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 were a part of creating this mag- magnificent structure, you know.
1: Yeah, it is fun to to send them an email or a text and say I was out on site and I saw this and it looks so great and countertops just got installed or whatever it may be, and just to be excited with them.
0: What about for you, Sue? Um, Just as far as, you know, what do you feel that you've gained the most growth being at AFT? Because you have experience. I mean, a little background for Sue as far as I know. I mean, you've been all throughout the industry, and you can give a little bit more of your experience, you know, through your career. But I know, you know, you worked with us at C. you worked with us on other custom homes, on, you know, the commercial side. And, you know, here you are being challenged in different ways, you know, at AFT. um, Yeah, I
4: guess... I mean I just I like building things it's fun and it's fun to overcome obstacles and you know and see that cool end result but I mean the end result that is that is awesome but it's just I don't know the daily just overcoming those obstacles and get getting stuff done and I don't know the whole process is actually a lot of fun even though it is a lot of work it's very rewarding
0: And we're only going to talk about the positive here, which is what we do. But you know, as far as you know, the design process, one of our staples is we only work with designers and architects, right, and landscape architects. And you know, there's a lot of what, what are the pros of working, you know, having a designer, having an architect, even a landscape designer. I mean, what is the value that brings, especially for you, Sue and Megan, in your role?
1: I think it helps keep things moving. We're not always being held up by the next decision is they've, they've they put aside that time in the beginning to, to make all those decisions and make those selections. And so it keeps things moving rather than having to stop, go to a design studio. And that still happens, things change, um, but it, it lays a good groundwork.
4: Yeah. And I think too, even just for the pricing process, having something like a design book or you know spec from the designer just, it's like, we it gives the trade something concrete to look at for their proposals and then also you know it gives you something to fall back on sometimes the owner will say oh maybe i want to do this and the designer says no 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 remember we decided this this is what you want to do or if they do make a change the designer will put her input to make sure that it it looks really good because sometimes there's unintended consequences with some bright ideas and so you know the designer is, is just so valuable to making sure that it's going to be totally awesome
0: how valuable is or how does it change your scope of work or demand um, internally if you have a really good set of drawings or a really good design book you know how does that facilitate your role
1: it's key i think it helps so much in the initial process of bidding and getting the scope correct and it's crucial.
0: It's yeah, funny because it Luann guess she's a podcaster, you know, back east, and she's really big in the design community. And I've been on her podcast a few times. And, you know, one of our things is, you know, like this A-plus design book we talk about. And the reality is this goes back to Patrick's earlier comment, right? We live and die by the scope of work. That's what we build on. And having a really good design book, good set of architectural plans, we have a really good scope of work. We have a really good understanding of what needs to be built. It's just more clarity. So the value for the client is now they have more price protection. We have more price control. We have more understanding. We can forecast. We can build quicker. I mean, there's just so many pros. And then we know at the end, it's going to look nicer. Our clients will be inspired. They're going to love their house. It's going to resell for more. I mean, there's just so many value adds for everyone in the process. Sure. You know, now, you know, as we get to the end here, wrapping up our conversation today, you guys have been amazing. You know, McCall going to you, what do you... With your experience, just so much involved in the operation of all of our companies. I mean, what advice would you give to a young company that's starting? You know, where should they focus their efforts, especially financially, you know, to start building that process? And, you know, just as they look to grow, you know, what, what should they focus on?
2: I think the biggest thing is to not forget how important your policies and procedures are, because that can actually make you a lot of money. Is just having a very clear path of what prevents
0: you from losing a lot or
2: yes that too Um, just being able to have a clear path every employee knows what they're supposed to do They know what they're supposed to submit when they're supposed to submit it your clients know what they're supposed to do what they're supposed to have when they're supposed to have it your trades know all of that can save a lot of money and really just make you a lot more profitable I care a lot about those things because that's what I always talk to you about. Like, oh, yes. if, if only this like policy or we need to follow this <laughs> procedure, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it makes a big difference to the bottom line. I think, obviously, every company mm-hmm. is going to look a little bit different based on how they have their company set up, what's important to the ownership of their company. So you might have a controller that very much disagrees with what I just said. But I... I have seen big changes in our company since we've implemented certain policies and procedures. And I feel like that's not something to overlook. But it's something really hard to have at the beginning of a company because you don't know yet. Or maybe you don't have enough employees yet to feel like you need it because everyone knows their job. But you want everything to be scalable too, right? Like We want to be able to do 10 times the amount of houses that we are right now and still make as much money as we are now, or more money than as we are now. And without that policy procedure base, you can't scale those things. So that's what I would recommend, I think, is to not, don't shirk in that area so that it's clear to everyone what needs to happen so you can make mm-hmm.
0: money. I love that you share that, because really what you're speaking about, McCall, is efficiency. I mean, it's, it's really hard to be efficient in construction. I mean, it's a labor industry. You're building a manufacturing facility that's brand new every time for each and every client that's different and it's custom. But there are procedures and and I'll say, this is one of your strong suits Is coming to me and saying, hey, Brad, we need to do X, Y, and Z. Here's this. And so what ends up happening is it really creates an opportunity for everyone to be successful because they know the role, they know the responsibility and what they have to perform. And you still have the teamwork and we still have the camaraderie and those things that you know as we work together. But you know, those efficiencies are really important because that allows us to deliver a better product. What about for you, Patrick? I mean, you know, especially from a legal side, uh, how, how are those napkin contracts for a new contractor? Yeah.
3: Well, I think it's, yeah, you want to get um, a good solid base of contracts in place um, when you start. I know that was one of the first things we did when mm-hmm. we started was, okay, let's get all of our contracts in place. Um, I agree with McCall that, you know, you got to get, get your policies and procedures in place. It's Um, I think it's a lot of it's consistency. Um, you get all that stuff in place, then you know what to expect for each project. Everybody follows the same thing. Um, but at the same time, one of the biggest things that I've had to adapt to and check myself on is, you know, I, I want things to be a certain order, right? I want, okay, this is what the contract says. This is what it is, but you have to be able to adapt, right? I mean, it's just because I want it that way. It doesn't mean it's realistic in the field or issues come up. So you have to be able to, um, like I said, adapt, uh, learn what's working, what's not working. If it's not working, okay, What? how do we change it to make sure it's, you know, going to be better for us down the road? Um, so I don't think you can just sit and um, not be willing to change, you know, and not be able to learn and think that you're, you're doing it the right way all the time because, as Sue and Megan have said, I mean, you learn something new every day and if you're not willing to, take that into account and change then you're not going to grow like you want to grow so um, it's just making sure you have everything in place but then being flexible to change it as needed I would think
0: so we'll go Megan and then McCall Sue and Patrick so in closing what do you like to do for fun you know outside of AFT because I know we work you to death here so outside of AFT what do you like to do for fun and then what's the best piece of ice you've ever been given
1: so I um, love to, to be outdoors, to work out, um, to just be active. So anytime I can, especially weekends, um, I do like to do that. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I was given years ago, and it's simple, but it's straightforward. And it says there's no growth in the comfort zone and there's no comfort in the growth zone. And so you have to push yourself. We, we want to grow. We want to do better. Um, we want to excel. And so you're going to have to be uncomfortable to do that and that's a daily thing
0: I love that
2: I didn't know we were supposed to have like advice to yeah. give to people but um one of the things that I really love to do my husband and I like to travel like we'll do little quick trips on the weekend even and I really like that like, going and exploring a new city or whatever so that's what I do to try and get away and not remember about work but I know um, the text from Brad <laughs> yeah I do my best <laughs> <laughs> but um I think the the biggest thing for me, both my parents really taught me growing up that it's important to work hard. And I feel like that is what has made me very successful is that you don't give up when something is hard, you just keep working. And I feel like I found a lot of success and that has helped us create success in the company um, that we have. A lot of people who do work hard and it's a, it's a good thing.
0: Yeah, it's very um, contagious too. Like everyone works hard and wants to do a good job and they show a lot of pride and and so it's just building. You don't want to let your teammate down, right? It's just like having an A team. You do, you know, you're, you're cognizant of what they're doing too. So we'll go to Patrick and then Sue.
3: I guess I didn't realize there was a life outside AFT. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Probably not for some of us. Um. Anyway, uh, photography is a big uh, hobby of mine. Um, I uh, like to go golfing with Brad. Um, Patrick's a
0: great athlete, former bit college baseball player, great golfer.
3: So uh, just trying to do things to unwind, um, just decompress a little bit, stress relief. Um, it's, you know, one good thing about photography, kind of gets you out and see different parts of the world and all that stuff. So uh, that's a good thing. Um, as far as advice, I don't know if I can top what's already been said, but um, it's just, You know, be unselfish. Um, there's gonna be certain times where you're gonna have to make a sacrifice for the betterment of the company. Um, you know, put in that extra time or um if someone's out, you know, maybe you just have to step in and do a role that you normally don't do. Um, but just be willing to um be a team player. And Sue?
4: Um, well, see outside of work, um I like to spend time with my family and I do like to travel and go out of town on little getaways go to nice restaurants i like that
0: (laughs) sue loves a good nice restaurant good steakhouse i do (laughs) (laughs) as we all do yes
4: um i'd say probably i mean i wouldn't say i have like advice advice but i think it's just always been deeply ingrained in me just to be um really task oriented and like work at a task until you're done Mm -hmm. or as you guys poke fun at me it come to your natural stopping point and if that's know
3: yeah so you're always giving me advice what are you talking about yeah (laughs) let's can you explain that because you're always telling
0: me what i need to do and sue knows all about a natural stopping point
4: (laughs) so if you're on a roll you just keep going and you don't stop just because ding it's five or it's time to go or whatever and um then of course then there's other times when you kind of come to a natural stopping point and
0: and the brain's just like i'm ready to shut down
4: and you're shut down you hit the wall and then you know that's time to go you know leave it and be refreshed but You know, a lot of times it's like, Sue, aren't you going to go home? Or you know, it's like, no, I'm. You know, because I'm kind of task oriented, and so I want to get it done, and while I'm on a roll, and so that's, you know, kind of what's been ingrained in me. I think advice wise, though, someone did tell me one time to make like your top five of things to do the night before, and I find that really helpful because then I'm not walking in like, you know. The next morning kind of going so what am i doing today you know it's nice to it's
0: a little stephen R. covey like yeah exactly
4: that mm-hmm. like you're you know night before list and you don't always get it and it rolls over to the next day but um at least you have it and you're not you know totally walking in First thing in the morning going, Ugh, I have no idea what's going on today, <laughs> so it's a good thing.
3: <laughs> you know, the thing is with Sue's natural stopping point, she thinks that should be everybody's natural. <laughs> yeah, stopping point.
0: yeah, she's pretty much like, a, Is everyone done now? Are we ready?
3: <laughs> yeah, because she'll come ask you if it's your natural stopping point. If you say no, the look of disappointment <laughs> on your face she just makes you feel so guilty.
0: Well,
4: I feel bad because I'm you know trying to get out the door and you're still staying, you know. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Well, you
0: all have been amazing. I'm super grateful. We wouldn't be AFT without this team here. So, Megan McCall, Sue, and Patrick, who have been on and shared some amazing things, and they've really made our company what it is today. So, thank you so much for joining us for this special holiday episode uh, to show a little bit behind the scenes. And thank you all for all the hard work you give us. So, thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss and also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.